0: Hello, this is Father John Arnold, and this is Oral Valley Catholic, and this is the second week of Advent, the second Sunday of Advent. This may not ever have occurred to you, but the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of John, and Genesis all start the same way, and that is with the word beginning. It's really the Greek word arche, and so... The word for the beginning that's in the first words of the book of Genesis, when translated into the Septuagint, that's the Greek uh, Old Testament that the evangelists all used. It's the same word that's used in Mark and John. Um, Now, why is that? Well, we'll have John's gospel on Christmas Day, and it begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, when the book of Genesis uses those words, um, it—if you remember—on the first day, wisdom is created, and John uses the word logos, which means wisdom, which is really interesting, because in the way that it's used in the New Testament, wisdom logos means God's dynamic, creative word, um, or pre-existent wisdom, as in uh, wisdom literature like uh, the book of Sirach or Proverbs. And it also means the ultimate intelligibility of reality, as in Greek philosophy. Uh, Have you ever considered why you can understand anything? Why we do math? Or as we say, or some philosophers say about human beings, what makes human beings unique is that we make judgments on the judgments that we make. This sense of self-consciousness is much more profound than simply we feel pain. Well, in Mark's gospel, it's different, but he still uses the same word, arche, and the gospel for today uh, begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So in Mark's gospel, in that first chapter, which is just bang, 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 um, the gospel begins, John the Baptist preaches, Jesus enters into the waters of baptism. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Jesus comes out of the wilderness after being tempted by Satan and proclaims that the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, Repent and believe the gospel. Um, And in John's gospel, Jesus is this rabbinic teacher, the Son of God, and that the good news is Jesus' life. He is the way. He teaches us how to be a human being. In Hebrew, the word would be holocaust. You learn the holocaust from your rabbi. Well, in Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1, which begins both like John and Mark begin with, in the beginning. Remember it says, in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form or shape, with darkness over the abyss and a mighty wind sweeping over the waters. And so what's the other connection between John's gospel, Mark's gospel, and Genesis? Yeah, you got it. Water. It's either the waters of baptism the waters of creation. So in Genesis, God separates the water. In John and Mark, uh, God enters into the waters of baptism and leads us through. So what is being said here by the evangelist? The same thing that's being said in Genesis by those ancient writers, Uh, New beginnings, new life, God's creative act leading the way. You see, the way is the key insight. The way is how you become a human being. You can become a human being or you can act towards your darkest impulses. But Jesus in the Gospel of Mark shows us what it means to be fully human because we are created to participate in divine order. And so let's turn to the Old Testament and the book of Isaiah. Lord, Isaiah is the most popular prophet with all of the evangelists. He had a huge, a huge impact on the early church. And this week we're in Isaiah chapter 40. And Isaiah chapter 40 is several generations after the destruction of uh, Jerusalem by Babylon and the exile of the people. Uh, they call it Second Isaiah because they don't think that the Isaiah that prophesied the destruction could still be alive seventy years later. And so, uh, prophets aren't necessarily a prophet; it's a school of prophet, uh, school of prophets gathered around uh, the original charismatic fi- figure. And so, in chapter forty, God's voice is being directed probably towards a group of prophets or scriptural interpreters. Um, And the, the thing about Isaiah is it's incomprehensible. The exile of the people and the book of Isaiah are incomprehensible without understanding that the Jewish people, the Judeans, transgressed a divine order that they'd agreed to in the Mosaic Covenant. Their destruction followed because the covenant that they had agreed to under Moses at that mountain in Sinai, or as also recounted in the book of Deuteronomy, had blesses and curses for obeying or not obeying. There are consequences when you enter into covenant with God. So the story of Israel is formed through Torah, which is a word that just means law, but it's around human frailty and divine mercy. And that's all the nuances of that reading from Isaiah 40 that is uh, for us this morning. I'm gonna go through a few pieces of it because it really is an important reading. So the reading from Isaiah today begins with God telling a group of probably Judean Torah scholars living somewhere uh, in Babylon. And it starts out, comfort, comfort my people. And the uh, tense that's used in comfort, comfort my people is a command telling these people to do something. And so these prophets are supposed to preach messages of comfort. And so God is addressing a group, probably of Isaiah uh, followers, that are supposed to talk to the larger group of Israel, of Judeans, that are stuck there in Babylon. And this is two or three generations after the original group was deported. So they're supposed to look for comfort in the scriptures. And so then it, God's voice in chapter 40 continues. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her service is at an end. Her guilt is expiated. Indeed, she's received from the hand of the Lord double for all of her sins. Okay. So when you say your guilt is expiated, your service is an end, time served, it's a prison metaphor. uh, And it is a metaphor for transgressing divine law. You know, all metaphors are limited, but there is some reality in the, the ideas that if you do not conform your life to what it means to be a human being, you end up in very dark places. Uh, In New Testament terms, you end up as a slave to sin. So that when this passage from 40 says, chapter 40 says that the people have paid double, it means that the punishment that's been meted out to them is more than justice even requires. So 70 years has really exceeded what the crime was, according to Isaiah. So the servant voice calls out, to make straight God's way. This is where John the Baptist gets the language at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark and in other Gospels. Because God is going to do something. That's what Isaiah is saying. That's what this comfort is. But, you know, in when we do these pericopes, which is a selection from Scripture, because you, you never get the entire chapter. Well, not often, at least. So what uh, is omitted is... Verses six and eight of chapter 40. And uh, they explore sin and suffering and punishment more thoroughly than that original part that I just read to you. So listen to this. A voice says, proclaim. I answer, what shall I proclaim? All flesh is grass and all their loyalty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower wilts. And when the breath of the Lord blows upon it, yes the people is grass the grass withers the flower wilts but the word of our god stands forever Uh, what do you make of that i'd suggest what it says is that god's mercy is really predicated on our uh, frailty when we talk about sin and i think outside of relationship with god Uh, sin is not intellectually comprehensible. You have to believe that you have transgressed something. But the reasons for transgressions could be ignorance of the law. That would be people outside of the Torah covenant as a general rule. Uh, Weakness, which really accounts for much of human sin. But then there's malevolence. Some people know what they're doing is awful, and they choose to do it anyway. But the sin addressed in Isaiah is both an offense against divine law and the result of human frailty. Not everybody is equally guilty in the nation Israel. In Isaiah, the divine response to human frailty is, and this is where we get back on track with the reading that we have at Mass, "'Go up on to a high mountain Zion, herald of glad tidings. Cry out at the top of your voice, "'Jerusalem, herald of good news.'" Bear not to cry out and say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Like a shepherd, he feeds his flock. In his arms, he gathers the lambs, carrying them in his bosom and leading the ewes with care. And so, this is written sometime in the 500 BC range, the sixth century BC, and it's these same images that Jesus will pick up in the Gospels about God caring for his people. You know, last week, Uh, we had Isaiah 63, which again is about this Torah relationship and what it means to be in a human relationship with God. If you think of divine law, either the Jewish Torah or the moral law as we Catholics and Christians understand it, this is how you relate to God. It's how you learn to live with God and love of human beings there in your mind and in your heart. Sin, either the refusal to enter into that covenant relationship or after entering into that covenant relationship, to fail because of ignorance, frailty, that is weakness or malevolence. This is what sin is. Sin is being somebody other than you were made to be. And so let's talk about the reality of human sin and how we experience it in our own lives. You know, I guess a psychologist would refer to sin as a merely dysfunction. Uh, but you know, psychology does not promote a moral order. What it promotes is trying to be functional, uh, to have some level of happiness. But I think the Catholic uh, response to it is, it's not possible to be happy unless your life is directed towards God you cannot be a slave to all the things that can enslave you and be happy and i think catholics mostly buy into that but consider it like this as to why what we believe is in fact the most plausible way to think about what it means to be a human to be a human being divine law describes what it means to be a human being in relationship to God and one another just Think of the Ten Commandments, the first three oriented towards love and worship of God, the other seven saying what you shall not do to your neighbor, right? But sin is to act contrary to what we were made for. Either we refuse to worship God and we take someone else, someone or something else as God, idol worship, or we refuse to love our neighbor and we we covet their wife or we kill them or we steal from them or we lie about them. Um, When you do something like that, if you're a sociopath, apparently you don't feel anything. But a human being, feeling that they have transgressed something, even if they did it ignorantly, can feel the pain of sin or the stain of sin. Or even if they don't feel guilty about that, they can walk into this trap where they just can't see what's in the dark and biting them. You know, what's a really good example of the long shadow that sin casts in our own, in our own uh, country. And it's really erupted this year. Uh, this is from uh, Gary Anderson's book, Sin, A History. And it's published by Yale University Press, so I think Dr. Anderson's at Notre Dame. But here's, what, here's his big example of the stain of sin on a national level in America. For example, he says, slavery in the United States is said to have left a stain upon our hands that still awaits cleansing. To speak in this fashion is to assume that sin is much more than a violation of a moral norm, and that the effects of sin are more extensive than a guilty conscience. A verbal declaration of regret may be fine, but the way a culture grapples with the enduring legacy of sin is another matter. A wrongful deed creates in its wake some sort of thing that has to be removed, It's not always easy to escape sin. The terrible legacy of slavery in the 19th century is one example of how the effects of sin can linger long after the perpetrators have left the scene. How do you think our nation uh, grapples with the sin of racism? We've talked about making reparation payments, but would that make the sin go away? If, If there was a payment to descendants of African slaves, For how many generations, forever? Would that still make the guilt go away? Can uh, we make it go away by trying to? Uh, pretend that there were not human beings there, because that's what our Constitution did. I like to point out that the Constitution of the United States is not a covenant with God. The Constitution of the United States is something we made up based on 18th century philosophy. And in that Constitution, if I remember correctly, uh, Native Americans and African Americans We're both defined as something less than persons, something like two-thirds or three-quarters of a person, mostly for census uh, purposes, I think. But it describes how we thought about them. We reduced them in the Constitution. We reduced them in the practice of how our nation dealt with them. You know, and we can't get away from it. How can a nation like America, that's just a secular nation, How do you deal with reality of sin? Here's another example. Well, the Judeans were marched into captivity in Babylon over 2,600 years ago, and we're still talking about it today. Here's another example. European colonialism left a long-lasting wound in the Middle East after World War I, if you ever watched the Peter O'Toole movie, um, Lawrence of Arabia. The mostly arbitrary division of the Ottoman Empire into European-style nations like Syria, Palestine, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, doing that, creating an environment where constant violent clashes and extremism, um, that's the consequences, are still being felt into our own time. Or how about this one? The Nazi persecution of the Jews left a long-lasting shadow in Germany and the world that continues to to resonate 80 years after the end of World War II. You can just keep going. All of these things, that just will not go away. The Orthodox still blame Latin Catholics for the crusader sack of Constantinople. I think it was the 13th century. You see, the legacy of sin casts a long, dark shadow over a nation. Sin isn't just about individuals. Sin is about a people. And so this whole story of Isaiah and the people being uh, put into Babylon and then told that their sin has been requited. It's that they've served double for their sins, is what Isaiah 43 says. There's some reality there in how the Jews and Christians think about that and about the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, There are avenues there for human beings that are not available uh, for the people who follow the the Nazi Germany and other uh, heirs, but had no role in those crimes. Or the people caught up in all the divisions of the Middle East, or even in our own country, slavery. This is a human problem. But you know, as we all know, because mostly we talk about sin having personal consequences. Because I think we've all had the experience of sin as a way that wounds how we see ourselves, our relationship with God, and our relationship with one another. Um, someone you've really hurt, their last person you want to walk in to a room and make eye contact with. But sin is bigger, and that was my point. It distorts nations, it distorts people. You see, to be a Catholic, be baptized, we have a way of dealing with sin. But how does the government of the United States deal with it, a secular government? You know, in ancient Israel, which was very different from the government of the United States, The stain of sin was removed through sacrifice and almsgiving on both the national and the personal level. Um, That's because Israel had a different understanding. They didn't make the Torah up. We made up the Constitution of the United States out of 18th century philosophy. We have five out of four lawyers that tell us that abortion is actually really okay. Uh, This is how we think about sin. And it's deadly for dealing with uh, dysfunctional human behavior. uh, Because dysfunctional human behavior is more than just a psychological reality. It's a deeply spiritual reality. But in Israel, once a year, Yom Kippur, that high priest would make um, atonement for the sins of the the people in the nation. Um, It's... This whole understanding of corporate and personal sacrifice in Israel that informs how the New Testament looks at the death of Jesus on the cross. Um, Jesus is incomprehensible without an understanding that sin is bigger than I make bad choices. Sin is debilitating, and if human beings can't deal with it, sin will destroy us. You know, uh, the gospel opens a pathway through this wilderness of human sin. This experience that human beings have, whether they believe in God or not. And that's why in the gospel of Mark, in the John, it starts in the beginning. Because there's a recreation happening. It's Israel's being broken open. That this covenant relationship is now a Catholic opportunity, a universal opportunity for everybody who so chooses to enter into a relationship with God. And if you do that and you live under his divine law, you have a way of dealing with the frailty of your humanity. And so with that, let's turn to the gospel. And so Mark's gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then it immediately goes to a voice of one crying out in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Don't, Don't forget Isaiah, because this is going back to this understanding of reconciliation that the people are being led in Isaiah from Babylon back to Jerusalem in the gospel of Mark that same historic experience is now the image about people entering the waters of the jordan river and coming out reconciled to god and then one very special man enters so think about jesus baptism because that's how the christmas season will end here's john the baptist and he's in the desert. And he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And here's what he says. One mightier than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop and loosen the thongs of his sandals. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so we think of our sacrament of baptism, the forgiveness of sins, which goes back to John the Baptist's baptizing act, but also baptized with the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. Uh, this is what creates our understanding of the sacrament uh, that when jesus is baptized, baptized he sublimates he lifts up this uh, this ritual washing into something that becomes a covenant making sacrament so when john the baptist baptized for the forgiveness of sins he was reconciling his fellow jews to the covenant think this through that act of washing the Jordan River would make no sense to a Gentile, a Greek, or a Roman, or a Thracian. It wouldn't make any sense to modern secularists secularists who are not part of the covenant. If you don't see yourself as entering into a covenant, what could you possibly mean by having water poured over your head and saying, I'm now okay? It makes no sense outside of relationship. And so for the first century Jews, they saw the big uh, sin of the Greeks was that there were lawless people. And they were, in the Jewish sense, the Greeks and the Romans had no moral law that tied them to God. Greco-Roman religion had nothing to do with morality. It was about manipulation of divine forces. Reconciliation only has a meaning in relationship, and that relationship is covenant. So John's baptizing in the Jordan, where Israel entered the Holy Land, they crossed the Jordan led by the Ark of the Covenant, Uh, because the Gentiles will enter into this covenant and the promised land where Jesus leads us, again, through baptism. You have to see how baptism is being presented here as a recreation. And so entering into covenant with God for a Jew or a Christian is about a change of mind and heart. So through baptism, Gentiles are made part of God's people and they can be reconciled to God's law, living by the divine order. The church gives us a place in baptism to be made human with God. Recall that in John's gospel, Jesus says that he is the way. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus heals the blind man, Bartimaeus, in Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus heals him and says to the blind man, go your way, your faith has saved you. And immediately, Bartimaeus received his sight, and then it says, followed him on the way. Remember, Holocaust. That once you've received a healing, then you follow and you can see and you can learn how to live. Uh, This way that's being prepared is what you and I participate here at St. Mark's or in the Catholic Church. We learn how to live through the waters of baptism, how we learn to live as a human being. Do you remember that in the book of Exodus? God leads the people through the desert to the promised land. In the day, he's a pillar of cloud. In the evening, he's a pillar of fire. Well, think of Jesus as the cloud and the fire going through the the waters of baptism. Why is it that baptism is, is necessary to the salvation of the soul? So the baptized enter the water like Israel entered the Red Sea led by Jesus. And so here's what uh, the Gospel of Mark goes on to say. It happened in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. On coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came from the heavens, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. You know, in Exodus, uh, God's Spirit came down on the tent of meeting in a glory cloud. So when Jesus is baptized, the heavens are torn open and the Spirit descends like a dove. Remember after 40 days and nights of the flood, Moses set a dove out and returned with an olive sprig as a sign of hope, Genesis chapter 8. That's, I think, what John means. This dove comes and it's a sign of hope. Uh, That's really at the heart of baptism. And so I'd like to wrap this all up. You know, in this study of these scriptures, remember that the evangelists begin their gospel in the beginning, followed by the story of John the Baptist and the Lord's own baptism. Because baptism is a new beginning where God recreates our hearts and minds. Jesus calls us to repent and believe in the gospel. Where God separated the waters in Genesis, God enters into the water and remakes them in uh, the four gospels. And so... Jesus in Mark comes up out of the water. We'll have these readings later, I think, in January. Um, But he comes out and he goes into the desert where he's tempted by Satan, overcomes uh, the claim of evil on the human heart. And then he comes out and here's what the gospel of Mark says. After John had been arrested, his ministry's over. his, His service is done. Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so Jesus enters the water of baptism and comes out with the gospel call, which his angels, his apostles, are sent out to the four corners of the earth to proclaim. So why does Mark start out his gospel, the beginning, in the beginning? Because in the beginning, John the Baptist, a voice crying in the wilderness, remember Isaiah, prepared a way for God through the waters of baptism. Jesus came leading to the waters of baptism and emerged to proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. In that act, he calls us Gentiles to convert our minds and trust in him to enter into covenant with God the Father. And in that covenant, our mind and heart belong to God. That's where the pathway is, the wilderness of our human frailty. You know, in our nation and in our lives, sin casts a long shadow, but grace illuminates even the shade. So this has been Oral Valley Catholic. I hope you're having a wonderful Advent.